Hey everyone, welcome to episode three of The Original, a podcast asking the question, what if the church started over? We've had a couple great conversations over the last couple of weeks, and I'm excited to dive into this week's question. First off, if you haven't, go back and listen to the first two conversations. They lay a great foundation for what we're talking about today. Second, uh, if you have any questions, send them uh, to the original at faithchapel.cc. If there's anything that sparked uh, curiosity that we didn't answer very well, or that you've been wondering for a long time about the church, uh, send them to the original at faithchapel.cc. And in the final episode, we will uh, tackle them, um, which will conclude in two weeks. Um, all right, let's dive into today's topic, which is called moving forward. One of the major reasons we started this conversation is because there are so many different ideas and feelings that can surface when we say the word church, depending on your past experience. And so we wanted to get to the bottom of what the church is really supposed to be and get past any misconceptions and get to the heart of the church. Last week, we talked about denominations and how the church has sometimes strayed from some of the non-negotiables or the kerygma and made bigger issues out of elements that should probably be more negotiables or things that are on an outer circle. So if that doesn't make sense to you, make sure to tune into last week's. But that does lead us to today's first question, which um, Nate, following up on this concept of kerygma, you uh, mentioned last week, which are the non-negotiables of what the church is, what it should stand for, believe, and be about. Um, I want to ask you, what would you say those are? In your opinion, what are the non-negotiables, the kerygma of the church? Jordan, it's, it's a good question, but I'll just be frank. It's a very difficult question to answer because we could probably sit oh, 40 different theologians down and they'd come up with 40 lists, um, something they would say is absolutely distinct. So what are the essentials? Maybe I'd answer in a couple of ways. The early church, uh, imagine this, you're spreading throughout the world, um, continuing the message of Jesus but there's no written New Testament. So what in the world are you going to tell people? And then the whole idea of most people were illiterate, okay? So you don't have a New Testament, and if you did, most people are illiterate, and so this is a a verbal message that's being passed from culture to culture. So early on, the church kind of focused on these ideas of what what would be the essentials? And what they did is they created the creeds. Now, we don't read creeds a whole lot, but originally the creeds came about because they wanted to give believers in all parts of the world something they could hang their hat on and something that they could say, if you agreed with these things, then we think you've got the essentials. Now, the first creed, and actually this summer, we're going to spend the summer walking through um, the old Roman creed which are kind of the essentials of what faith is all about. It later became the Apostles' Creed. So the Roman old Roman Creed wouldn't be as accessible, but if you looked at the Apostles' Creed, that was kind of one of the church's first attempts at saying, we think these things are essential, and there's a lot that's not in there, um, which is disturbing to some. But I think if we looked at something like the old Roman Creed, even the Apostles' Creed, for the most part, that's grasping these big concepts that would be essential. And it leaves out a lot of the speculative, a lot of the peripheral things, a lot of things that people would have different opinions on. But I, I would say this, Jordan, the one thing that I I think you would need to hold on to is you have to decide what you're going to do 
with the Bible, with the scriptures. Because really, everything else is going to emanate out of that. Sure. So if the Bible is accurate, authoritative, they have big words that start with I that we use, um, inspired, infallible, inerrant. Um, now, th- those words are invented, but what they say is, basically, is the Bible something you can trust? So if the Bible is something you can trust, then your main teachings are going to come out of the Bible. Mm-hmm. But if you if you have confusion about what the Bible is, how much of it you can trust, where are you going to find your essentials? Sure. If you don't base it out of the scriptures, then they come out of, oh, my own experience, or culturally this seems to work, or I like this, I don't like that. You base it on preferences. Right. Right. So I think really at the core, the first thing anyone has to do is decide, what do I think about the Bible? Sure. Is it authoritative? Lots of words have been used. Um, one of my favorite comes from a German theologian by the name of Karl Barth. And Barth, uh, he said this. He said um, illumination mm. is one of the most important parts. So he added a, a fourth I word. He said, when we read the scripture and we read it without this idea that Jesus introduced, that the Holy Spirit would be there to lead us into all truth, that one of the primary jobs of the Holy Spirit is he's our tutor. He said, you can have a Bible and you can even decide, yes, this is authoritative. It's inerrant, infallible. Uh, but if illumination, meaning you're not reading it in partner with a partnership with the Holy Spirit where he's actually teaching you things, mm-hmm. well, then it's just become a cognitive exercise for a human being <laughs> where I look at this book, I try to dissect it, I try to find the truth. So there's always something mysterious when it comes to the Scripture is I am trusting that the Holy Spirit is actually teaching and tutoring me. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, cognitively I'm involved in this. But beyond that, there's a supernatural thing that's happening where the scriptures are teaching me as the Spirit tutors me. I think that's part of why we believe um, so strongly in what Martin Luther called the priesthood of all believers. Not everybody can spend years of their life going to seminary, you know, getting graduate degrees, learning original languages. Some of us get to do that. That's great. However, every one of us has access to the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. who is our tutor. So the old Roman creeds, I think those would be a great synopsis. And I think your primary issue has to do with the Bible. What is it? Can you trust it? Is it authoritative? If you want to use all those I words, you can. Um, but I think you can use all the I words, inerrant, infallible, um, and miss out even on this other element of the Spirit teaches us through the Scriptures. Right. Um, when it comes to the idea of charisma, Jordan, I think it's always going to be a narrower list in what's core and essential than most of us would desire. Mm-hmm. I've got an example here, Acts chapter 15. Here's the problem, just to set up. So... The, the message of Jesus is being spread throughout the Roman Empire. And the Jews, who are the original recipients, are following up Paul as he plants churches in Greek and Roman cities. And, I mean, people are excited. They're like, I can't believe this. Like, we can be forgiven. God's alive. He's at work in me. There's second chances. I've got a mission in life. 
Um, but here come the Hebrew, the Jewish believers, and after Paul leaves, they come in and they say, hey, you know, Paul didn't actually give you any everything. He just gave you, like, the, the really sweet part. Now, uh, we've got some other news for you. Look at this. And they show them the Old Testament. And they say, the Old Testament says, you need to be circumcised. Which, of course, Roman Greek culture, that was not part of their culture. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine this news went over, like, a ton of bricks mm-hmm. with these Greek and Roman believers are like, are you kidding me? Like, no, but Paul didn't tell me this. So it creates quite a hubbub. They get upset. Paul uh, makes a big deal about it. They gather in Jerusalem. So now you have the original leaders of the church. James seems to be the, the, the primary leader at this point. They gather in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 15. It's called the Council at Jerusalem. They're really the first kind of big theological debate that they're officially going to deal with. And um, Paul stands up and says, you guys, listen, I'm the one who's been traveling. I'm planting these churches. Let me tell you what God's doing. He's changing lives. People are getting baptized. People who are not circumcised are having their lives transformed. They are actual disciples of Jesus Christ. And so as James and the other leaders of the church listen, they say, boy, Paul's got a point there. And so this is what he says, and uh, James says in verse 19, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write them, telling them, and here's his list, (laughs) to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from the meat of strangled animals and blood. So, I mean, think of all the things you could put in this list. So this is the list that's going to go out from Jerusalem. It's going to go to all these churches in the Roman Empire about what we think is essential. Now, it's not a theological list, okay? I think it was a given that Jesus is Lord. Um, Mm -hmm. But in terms of behavior, he just took a whole bunch of things that people wanted to be in the box of the essentials, and he said, we're not going to include those, but here are the ones. Uh, Abstain from food polluted by idols. Because it was disrupting. So the common practice of the day was you could usually buy meat for cheaper in the market if it was meat that was offered to the Roman gods. And so it had gone through a sacrificial system, and it was really disturbing for some. Actually, Paul gets into it in Corinthians, and he says, eh, you know, if it causes somebody to stumble. But they go, that's a a big one for us. And uh, then they put in from sexual immorality. Well, from Greek-Roman society... I mean, gloves were off when it came to sexuality. There really weren't many boundaries. And so there's a really conservative thing they're going to put in this box, say, this this is really important Mm -hmm. to us, that sexuality was created by God for a purpose in a context. And then he says, for me... uh, of strangled animals. <laughs> now, that was probably more of a cultural thing. You know, it's one that we probably don't have to worry about a lot, but it was one way of killing an animal and probably had some hygienic issues involved. And then lastly, from blood. I'm really grateful for that one. I've never struggled <laughs> right. with, um, you know, eating, drinking too much blood. Right. But for them, that was a big one. So those were more behavioral, but they say, the, the opening phrase, let's not make it difficult. Right for the non-Jewish people to follow Jesus. Sure. So I think one of the things we want to be aware of, of course, there's theological essentials, but the more things we put within these essential boxes that aren't definitive and core, the harder we make it for people who are far from God to contemplate coming closer to God. Mm. Uh, To me, that's inspirational. Yeah, And so that's even part of how we run our local church here is... What can we take away 
that makes it difficult for non-believers mm. to believe. Yeah. And never take away the core essentials. Right. But are there are there things that don't need to be there that are major encumbrances? Yeah. So there's been maybe a history and even a perception of the church that we would be an organization that tends to stand against things. And so you've talked about this idea of being known for things. So maybe talk a little bit about even looking at boiling it down to some of these essentials. What do we need to stand for? How do we take the, if the Bible is true and there are some directives, some imperatives that are given to us, how do we see the Bible as a, as an authority and live that out and then also interact with people by removing some of those obstacles for people to come meet Jesus um, and be for things instead of creating all of these lists of oppositions that you need to behave a certain way before you belong. Yeah, that really is a cultural tension. Um, maybe first, Jordan, I'd go back to what we even talked about at this past weekend services. Uh, we read from 1 Corinthians chapter 5 where uh, there's something happening in their church which Paul is disturbed by. He's not there, so he writes a letter. He hears that there's a man apparently sleeping with his stepmother, and the church is fine with it. In fact, they're really proud. Hey, we're a church that accepts everybody. And Paul gets into this whole thing where he says, hey, wait a minute. Uh, this is not okay. He actually uses the phrase, he goes, this is something that even the pagans are uncomfortable with. So as he goes through that, I love that he says, we have a responsibility to judge our fellow disciples. Mm. Now, it's in a loving environment. But he actually says at the end, what business is it of ours to judge society? So our, our little phrase was, uh, in the first century, they expected disciples to act like disciples, but they never expected non-disciples sure. to act like disciples. Why would they? And so Paul says, there's got to be a consistency within the church. And so he says, we have to have an authentic community where, Jordan, you can look at me and in a loving way say, Nate, can I, can I tell you, I see a point of inconsistency in your life. Hmm. And I have to be secure enough and open enough to say, Jordan, I'll take that. I'll think about that. I'll pray about that. Mm -hmm. I'm going to bring that before God. What needs to transform in my life? Where I think we get into so much tension with the culture is we do the opposite of what Paul says. Yeah. <laughs> we're kind of like, hey, uh, church, we're all we're, we're good, and we're pointing fingers outside of the church. Yep. And, and, and Paul says, that's not our business. Uh, we're not here to legislate culture's morality. We're here to be consistent people and actually, over time, through the process of healing and redemption, which takes a while... Our lives are consistent. So I think part of that tension comes from when we are expecting people far from God to act like they're close to God. Mm -hmm. Why would we? Right. Um, when we're for things. That, that, was a, that was a great phrase. Jesus seemed to be for a lot. I can tell you what he was against. Read, read the uh, four accounts of his life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He was against hypocrisy, and he was against religious oppression, and some other things. But really... Those were the major things that he was against. What was he for? He's for forgiveness. He's for humility. He's for repentance. Um, I think when we take a posture where we're on the defensive, 
it's not healthy for us. Mm-hmm. There, there's a primary way you, you have to deal with um, the text where Jesus is with his disciples up at Caesarea Philippi. Uh, I was just there like a month ago. Incredible place. But there, there's, there were three temples there. And it was not a place where you would go with 12 young men because it was a pretty scandalous place. So there's this huge hole in the ground. And over it, they built a temple to the god Pan, the mm-hmm. Greek god Pan, who is the god of chaos. So our word panic comes from that. So involved in uh, bringing about chaos and trickery, and he was half goat, half man, and uh, also a fertility god. And even before this, the Canaanites used this place to worship Baal or Baal. And so there's one temple there. The other one was um, to Jupiter, and the third one was to the Roman Emperor Tiberius. And so people would travel and worship. And every spring in ancient times, they would throw sacrifices into this hole. They called it the gates of hell because it was this bottomless hole. And so they'd throw these sheep and these goats in there, hoping to awaken uh, Baal or Pan to come out and bring spring and fertility. So Jesus is there. And he's there with his disciples and it's at that place overlooking those three temples where he asked this question to his disciples. He says, who do men say that I am? Mm -hmm. And they say, well, there's different opinions. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're the prophet. And Jesus then changes the question. He says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, definitive article, the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus looks at him and says, Upon this rock, play on words, uh, Peter's name Petros in Greek, rock. Upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not stand against it. Well, what we miss, if we don't understand the context, is they're standing at the place called the gates of Hades. (laughs) Okay, And so uh, Roman Catholicism has said, well, that's all about Peter. Upon Peter, I'll build the church, and so the secession of Peter with every pope. But there's probably a much larger meaning to that. Um, and, and the real part we have to deal with is the gates of hell will not stand against it. So I read that for years and years. And because I had a defensive orientation of what the church was, I thought hell's coming at us. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to keep hell out and be safe, recuse yourself, pull away from society, don't let hell overwhelm. It took me a long time. But now I read that and I go, Jesus is standing in front of this place called the gates of hell. And he's saying this, hell's actually in the defensive posture. Hmm. The gates of hell can't stand against this message that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And so there's a brand new orientation then for the church. I mean, think of visually the difference. Either you're standing behind a wall, a huge gate, trying to keep hell out, or the church is actually proactive moving forward. Hell's trying to keep people locked up in addiction, confusion, isolation, all of these things. Mm-hmm. And what the church is doing is trying to knock down the gates mm-hmm. of hell to set captives free. That was the mission of Jesus. So all of a sudden it becomes different. When we get defensive, when we read it as if we're on the defensive, we are clear on what we're standing against. We look at culture and we say, we're against that, we're against Mm -hmm. this, we're against that. There are moments where we need to stand up for righteousness. I'm going to talk this weekend about being salt and light. It's a big deal. However, when we are pointing fingers, I think we lose 
the idea that we are actually called to this offensive, lead, liberating captives mm-hmm. from the bondage of hell. And so it's not what we're standing against, it's what we're for. We're for freedom. Mm-hmm. We're for deliverance. We're for forgiveness. We're for hope and renewal. We're for all of those things. So practically, what do you do with that? Well, there's a lot of confusion in our society today regarding marriage. I had a long conversation with a pastor, and uh, he was very frustrated at me because of the stance I wasn't taking. He wanted me to take a very public stance in a newspaper article. And I looked at him, and I said, I think biblically we agree 100%. But I said, I think that we want to have, this is the priority of our church here at Fitch Chapel. We want to have the healthiest biblical models of marriages imaginable here where people would look and say those people genuinely love each other in a sacrificial manner and if we could have great marriages that's what we're for we're for a man and a woman loving each other for a lifetime through thick and thin a love that models the relationship that Jesus has with the church it's Paul's whole thought there That's when we're for something rather than what we're against. What we're against is obvious. I mean, the scripture to me is really clear on that. But what do we want to emphasize? What we're against or what we're for? Mm-hmm. Could we build the healthiest models of marriage that inspire our culture and make some people take a second thought and go, I think actually that's preferential. Mm-hmm. What those are the followers of Jesus have, that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. That inspires me. Mm-hmm. Following along that thought of being for and even looking at how it interacts with culture, last week you talked about Emperor Julian and how the early church was taking care of some of the people that the state had rejected. And so you talk a little bit right now of being for marriages and being for, you know, going into uh, maybe dark places and liberating uh liberating people, bringing freedom and, and being more on the offense than we would be on the defense. And so my question would be, do you think the church should be leading the charge in terms of social justice, that as we see all these different movements, all these different places of darkness, um, I mean, the question is kind of already answering itself, but what does it look like for us as believers now, maybe shifting our paradigm a little bit to be for these things? What does it look like us for us to lead that charge? Jordan, I came across a, another quote um, from Emperor Julian, and he was very frustrated at his priests. And so, remember, he's trying to revert the Roman Empire back to worship of the ancient Greek and Roman gods. He's frustrated because <clears throat> the priests were usually the first people to know that an epidemic was breaking out in a city because they'd, they'd see a pattern of multiple sick people coming, and they'd come to the local temples and offer sacrifices, asking their gods for healing. <laughs> And he says, what frustrates me is that my priests are the first people to flee the city because they see before anyone else this pattern and some sort of epidemic is breaking out. So the priests would flee the city knowing that sickness was coming. He says, and compare that to these Christians. Um, Because there was no really medical technology whatsoever, if somebody was showing signs of a sickness, they'd actually be put on the doorstep of the home. Everybody would hide inside. And... um, 
they didn't want to contract whatever the family member had. And it, it was just a unique thing that the Christians came along. They did that with children as well. They just um, put them out on the street. Yeah, yeah. Especially um, the first, second, and third century, uh, Roman law allowed um, for you to take a, a newborn infant and anytime during its first week of life, you can put it on your doorstep overnight. And so typically it was women and any children that was born with any uh, physical or mental challenge. You left it on the doorstep. Anybody was free to come take that child and raise it. Um, but if not, the child would die overnight of, of uh, exposure. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things the Christian church did is they came and they'd swoop up these babies, typically baby girls, and they'd raise them in their own homes. Any baby that had any sort of uh, challenge, they'd take. And then they'd find the sick that had been locked outside of the home. And they take them in, and there are multiple accounts of Christians contracting the disease themselves as they um, nurtured and cared for those who were sick. So it's a beautiful thing, absolutely. I think that going back to one of our original ideas, uh, Jesus says, they'll know you're my disciples by the way that you love one another. He's talking about internal relationships there, but then he says, um, love one another as I have loved you. And Jesus' love was sacrificial. It cost him his, his life. And so that type of love we see in Jesus, we see in these first disciples, it, it's not easy, Jordan. It, it costs something. It's easier to talk about than mm-hmm. to do. But I think if we could learn to love people the way Jesus loved us, sacrificially, changes the world. And so if there's anyone that should have a heart for the oppressed, for the broken, for people confined within the gates of hell, it should be us. And so we're on this rescue mission. (laughs) I mean, in my mind, even right now, at gates of hell, I hear screaming pain behind it. And I just see disciples of Jesus banging on walls, climbing over walls, trying to knock down those gates to say those people are made in the image of God and they need rescue. And Jesus came to rescue them and he handed that task, that assignment off to his church and he's still doing it but through us. Now, one of the difficulties, Jordan, where this becomes confusing in our day and age is our social welfare system. Mm -hmm. So in the first century, and even if you looked at the Old Testament, it just didn't exist. Um, There were two things really that... that, uh, were, were there to care for the poor and needy. One was the family system, very tight-knit, usually lived with extended family. And if somebody became sick, ill, um, incapacitated, couldn't work, a family took care of them. Um, and then the second one was the the church, or in the Old Testament, it would have been the temple in the local synagogue. Uh, early in Jewish culture, they were asked to tithe, which meant to give a tenth of their income And there's four clear designations of the tithe in the Old Testament. The orphan, the widow, the foreigner, and the priest. So the priest couldn't have her own land, so part of the tithe went to support um, people who continued and made made it possible for for worship to to function. But then you'll notice the other three recipients of the tithe, orphan, widow, foreigner. Um, Orphan, clear, widow. There was no social welfare system. The foreigner would have been people who were immigrants. Immigrants couldn't own land as well, and it was hard for them to find jobs. So that was God's heart. I mean, you find that going way back into the book of Leviticus. So what do we do now? 
um, because Jordan, you are paying a percent of your salary into social security and into some other taxes that are meant to create a social uh, network to help people who fall in hard times. So I think that's where it's a little bit more challenging for the church. Like, well, but I pay taxes so that the government can take care of people. Mm-hmm. I don't think we have to fight against that. I think that's a tremendous blessing. But here's what's important. I don't think it's possible for the church to go, well, that's taken care of by the government. Sure. You know why it needs to be taken care of the government? I think because the church didn't always do what the church was supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Look around the nation, even the world, globally. So many hospitals were started by Christian organizations mm-hmm. because they took this seriously. Um, I think when we move away from that, there's a vacuum and government will move in. Mm-hmm. And I never want to say, well, my assignment's done there. How are we on the front lines? Mm-hmm. I, I love, I think there's a renewed passion within the followers of Jesus globally to say, we want to be responsible. Yep. Thank God for governments. Thank God for social welfare systems. But ultimately, we're not going to step away from that because that's part of our mission is yep. to care for the poor, the broken, the needy. Release. Here's what, here's what no social welfare system can do. Can't release captives from the gates of hell. Mm-hmm. The church can do that. We can both help the poor. But a social welfare system can't release captives. It can only ease their difficulty, their pain, their their discomfort. I love that, man. That's a cool picture. That's a, that's an inspiring. And in, even as you you talk that, you know that whole picture of the gates of hell cannot overcome us. It cannot overcome the church. Can overcome this movement. That's an inspiring, man. It just gets. It's fun. It, it? Yeah, it yeah. Is. it's it's such a different picture. And sometimes I think. Even in conversations I've had in in my upbringing of, you know, they, they sit around fear and, well, what if this happens? What if this happens instead of this? No, we're going to go. We're going to go in there. and We're going to get him. I love that phrase you said that we we're on a rescue mission. And that that's cool. That yeah. that just that's that's what this is all about. I love that. Well, thanks, everyone, so much for listening. I don't know about you, but. I'm enjoying this conversation that we've started. And if you've benefited from this, would you tell someone about it? Especially if you know someone who has questions. We, we uh, did this in hopes that um, these conversations would be a way to help bring understanding to the heart of the church. Um, like we've said, there's so many different um, emotions, concepts, uh, both good and bad that can come up when you say the word church. And so our, our goal was to get to the heart of this. Um, and we'll be taking a break next week um, and then recording the final episode in two weeks. So that gives you two more weeks to submit your questions to the original at faithchapel.cc. And we can't wait to hear all of them. Thank you for listening. <laughs>